Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here tonight. I wish I could be there in person, um, but it's nice seeing the geographic diversity. I'm sure it's more than uh, we would have if we were just down in New York. Um, I, what I'm going to do is I have a presentation. Uh, I'm going to set my little timer so we um, come in at time. I get very bored myself on presentations. So I have a sort of picture book approach, which means there's going to be lots of images on the slide and I'm sort of going to talk my way um, through them. Uh, but, you know, just you'll have to bear with me. I'm, I'm, uh, I give talks the way I like to watch them myself. So um, let me first begin by seeing if I can get the share screen correct, which is always this awkward moment at the beginning. Um, of a talk and let's go back to the beginning and um, so hopefully that shows up for everybody. Uh, this is the cover of the book, um, um, my new book, Female Genius, Eliza Harriet and George Washington at the Dawn of the Constitution. And you can buy it, I think, through a link I saw uh, on the web page um, uh, or at Barnes and Noble uh, or Amazon or through UVA, um, uh, UVA Press. And the quote you see here on the front is the epigraph of the book. And I want to begin there because um, one of the things in telling the story of Eliza Harriet Behrens O'Connor is the importance of her own understanding of her life, of, of what she stood for and how one should think about her. And this is a quote that she wrote in a newspaper advertisement that she placed um, for a female school. The exertions of a female should be considered as presenting an example to be imitated and improved on by future candidates for literary fame. And this is a theory about um, the example of a woman, how we should understand that. And what I really love about this quote uh, that she understood is she understands herself in a long tradition of female examples, but as an example to be uh, imitated and improved on, not just imitated, but the idea being that she understood that she herself had limitations and she hoped that other people uh, would um, improve on that. So I wanted to begin um, there. Had the tavern been operating in 1786, and uh, in 1786 is a period when Francis Tavern is being used actually as a, um, a political office. Uh, I do think um, Eliza Harriet and her husband John would have frequented um, the tavern and they lived uh, quite close to the tavern, um, kind of where the Beekman Hotel is in 1786. And so I like to think about uh, the overlap between this story and the tavern building um, itself. So let me begin by just sort of putting us in the context of, um, of women in American politics. And 150 years ago, the first woman ran for the presidency, Victoria uh, Woodhull. You'll see her uh, little nomination paper there in 1872 on the right side of the page. Um, but the Constitution, if we sort of look at it just as a document, is ambiguous about whether or not women are included in the constitutional body politic. And in fact, um, the 28 apparently male pronouns related to the president, and I know because I've counted them many times, um, lead some people to think that uh, women were unknown to the founders, that the idea of a female office holder was something completely outside of the imagination at the time that the Constitution was written. But, um, but that's not quite accurate. In 1788, the year immediately after the Constitution was drafted, while it was still being ratified, uh, Hugh Henry Brackenridge wrote an essay. And he was poking fun at the Constitution, but uh, making political comments at the same time. And one of the things he wrote was, the first thing that strikes a diligent observer is the want of precaution with respect to the sex of the president. Is it provided that he shall be of the male gender? What shall we think if in the process of time we should come to have an 
old woman at the head of our affairs? What security have we that he shall be a white man? And in this comment, what Brackenridge points out is that the Constitution is actually capable of being read in an expansive, uh, inclusive way. Now, this is important when we think about the founders, because we tend to think of the founders as, to use Thomas Jefferson's uh, phrase, an assembly of demigods. And our images of the founders, uh, particularly in public spaces, are almost entirely of the white men who were inside the convention. So two images on the slide here that may be familiar to people is Barry Faulkner's uh, very famous image of the Constitution being signed. This is in the National Archives uh, rotunda. And Howard Christie's mural, the signing of the Constitution of the United States. This is actually in the Capitol building um, uh, near the House of Representatives. And the Christie put the framers outside, but he still didn't add any people other than the people who were inside uh, the convention hall. But we might think that um, a demigod herself, Cleo, who is the muse of history, was, of course, a female figure. And she was the daughter of Zeus and the titan of memory, Mnemosyne. And so what Cleo reminds us is that history creates power through memory. And as the late um, Jan Ellen Lewis, one of the great writers about women in the founding period, wrote, the sort of presence of women in the founding is shadowy. And unless you turn up the lights very, very bright, you can hardly see them at all, but they're there. And that's so my project in some way is to reclaim at least the story of one woman who was there at the founding. Um, let me tell you where I began this project in my earlier book, uh, Madison's Hand, which is about the James Madison's account of the summer of 1787 and the story of his famous um, notes of the convention. And that's a book that argues that he didn't complete those notes uh, in the summer of 1787, that he rewrote some of those notes uh, two years later and over the next decade. And one of the things I did in working on that project was I read every contemporaneous account of the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia. And one of my favorite accounts was the account that George Washington kept that summer. Um, George Washington kept a diary in the summer of 1787. And in fact, he kept a diary his entire life. Uh, he had arrived on time for the convention and um, everybody else was late. And so he was kind of waiting around uh, uh, doing various things while he waited for the convention to begin. And one of the comments uh, that he, one of the events he describes in his diary is this note from Friday the 18th. Now this is actually a revised version of his diary because he returns to Mount Vernon in the fall and sort of rewrites his diary. He liked to keep his diaries in particular books and he had forgotten that book when he traveled to Philadelphia. So on Friday, May 18th, he wrote, the representation from New York appeared on the floor today, dined at Grace Ferry and drank tea at Mr. Morris's, after which accompanied Mrs. Morris and some other ladies to hear a Mrs. O'Connell read, a charity affair. The lady, being reduced in circumstances, had had recourse to this expedient to obtain a little money. Her performance was tolerable at the college hall. Now, we might remember, for those of us who are big Jane Austen fans, that the word tolerable is actually the first comment that Mr. Darcy says about Eliza Bennet. And we might know that Jane Austen began Pride and Prejudice, then called First Impressions, very early in 1796, so just a little bit after the time of this story. And this comment in Washington's diary about a Mrs. O'Connell made me wonder who was Mrs. O'Connell and was it common for women to read in the college hall? Was it common for women to give in a lecture? And so when I finished my Madison's handbook, I went back to try and see, could I figure out who this mysterious Mrs. O'Connell was, what she was doing in Philadelphia, why Washington 
heard her speak and what the significance of it was. And that book, uh, that, that became this book, Female uh, Genius. She wasn't Mrs. O'Connell. She's actually a woman named uh, Mrs. O'Connor. And that's the story I'm going to tell tonight uh, that you can read in far more detail uh, in, um, in the book. To begin with, we have to think about what the moment is we're talking about. And two concepts are very important. One, this is an age of what we call the Constitution. And what we mean by Constitution in this period is a little bit different than how we might imagine it today. So the word Constitution in this period is very slowly taking on a new meaning. The 1787 Constitution will eventually become a new genre of a type of Constitution, one that's written and interpreted by the judiciary, and that becomes interpreted in all sorts of different ways. But in the summer of 1787, the word hadn't quite taken on that meaning. It still had the older meaning of an unwritten Constitution, or really a system or frame of government. And so this is the age of the Constitution. The Constitution is a word that appears in so much vocabulary, literature, politics, and of course, law in this period. And the idea behind the Constitution in this period, if we sort of describe it in a very cartoon-like way, is increasingly people were pushing for greater representation. Now, who was represented and how they were represented, those questions would become more clear later on. But at this moment in the 1770s and 1780s, lots of people are thinking about a type of constitution or system of government that is more representative of more people. And at the same moment, women, particularly in Britain and Ireland, France, and the United States, begin to imagine that for the first time in a very long time, they might be able to finally overturn an idea that women were inferior. This is an argument that I call in the book the inferiority thesis. And the idea was simply that women were inferior. And therefore, because they were inferior, because they didn't have the right kinds of minds, they were therefore excluded from all sorts of educational opportunities and from politics. And in the 1770s, what we see, particularly in England, is the flourishing of a notion of female genius. And we see this word over and over, genius, with the word female attached to it. And what people meant by genius is a little bit different than what we might assume. Genius in this period really means capacity. And it's a word that had up until then been used almost uniformly to refer to men. So by describing a new term, female genius, people were holding out the idea that women had capacity. We see this, for example, in this translation of Rousseau from this period. Which would you esteem the most, a woman who you found employed in the proper occupations of her sex in her domestic concerns, or a female genius scribbling verses on her toilette and surrounded with pamphlets of all sorts? And pamphlets is a word uh, that almost usually means political pamphlets. We see this in this beautiful painting by Richard Samuel of the living muses of England. And these were all portraits of very famous women, uh, including Catherine Macaulay. And we see in the lower left hand of the screen, Catherine Macaulay, the great constitutional historian, whose famous eight volume work on the history of England was beloved by so many of the framing generation. Phyllis Wheatley, importantly, in 1774, was referred to by as a female genius by Mary Scott in a poem called The Female Advocate. And Mary Scott tried to list all the female geniuses of this period, Wheatley among them, arguing that for the first time in a long moment, there was this great flourishing of women. And the 1780s actually saw a number of debating societies in London, female debating societies. And these debating societies explicitly argued about whether or not women ought to be able to vote in election of representatives or sit in parliament. And so Eliza Harriet, the person we're now going to talk about, comes of age in this moment. 
I have no portrait of Eliza Harriet. She was born Elizabeth Harriet Behrens. And I call her Eliza Harriet because that's the name she signed herself, her first and middle names. She was born in 1749 to a family that was quite prominent and aspiring. Her mother's family were the Hardys, and there you can see the beautiful George Romney portrait of her uncle, Sir Charles Hardy, who became one of the significant admirals and would go on to be a governor in New York. Her other maternal uncle was the governor of New Jersey. And you can see here a picture of her cousin, Catherine Hardy, in this lovely Thomas Lawrence picture. And so I like to think that she probably had the same kind of nose that you can see both Catherine and Charles had. In 1776, she marries a man called John O'Connor, and this is a man who's completely outside of her own circles. He was Irish, Irish Catholic. He came from Sligo. He claimed to be a gentleman. He had gone probably to Trinity College and then had come to London to study law. But people in this period don't really study law. It's a form of um, politics. And in the summer of 1776, the niece of Sir Charles Hardy and the heir of Benjamin Barons get married. They get married in a service on a Thursday in an Episcopalian chapel, but married by an Irish man. And so probably John O'Connor had not converted. And they spend their early married life in Dublin and in London in this moment with this great and flourishing of people arguing about political representation and female genius. One of the things that's interesting about Eliza Harriet is she reminds us how often people moved in this period. Her own father had served as the port collector in Boston and worked for the post office as a deputy postmaster in Charleston and also in New York as an aide to the governor of New York, her uncle. She probably didn't go to Boston. She was probably in boarding school at the time, but she did probably travel to both New York and Charleston. And so in 1786, when she and John decide to move after the end of the revolution and the Treaty of Paris to New York, this is not a move that's entirely new. During her life, she will be surprisingly itinerant, and all of the green labels on the map show cities in which she lives. In fact, over her lifetime, she will move progressively southward along a road that's called the King's Highway. So in 1786, she goes to New York. She starts a uh, very uh, successful uh, girls' school. Um, uh, in New York. Uh, she has the most famous uh, people in the city. The daughters of their, they, uh, their daughters are at her school. So Alexander McComb's daughters, the Knox's daughters, the Hillegas daughters, uh, the Temple's daughters, all of those daughters are going to school in 1786. And she's so successful uh, that at the end of the term, she decides to give public examinations. And she explains that she expects such an audience to her public examinations that they won't fit in her school. And so she gets the Columbia College professors to lend her a room at Columbia College and to agree to examine the girls herself. So she's a person of incredible ambition about uh, female education. But then in a move that will characterize her life, her husband decides they're moving onward. Uh, John gets a job as an editor of the Columbia Magazine in 1787, and they move to Philadelphia. And in the summer of 1787, Philadelphia is the place to be. It's the place where the federal convention to write a new constitution to replace the Articles of Confederation is going to happen. And Philadelphia is a terribly exciting place in 1787 with the Constitutional Convention coming. All sorts of people imagine the possibilities of reform. And so very significantly, the Free African Society is founded in 1787 with the Reverend Absalom Jones to assist free African Americans. Philadelphia had a large enslaved population, but it also had the largest free Black population in the United States. 
And the Pennsylvania Abolition Society is reconstituted in the summer of 1787, designed to push for the abolition of slavery and the relief you can see there, free Negroes unlawfully held in bondage. And Philadelphia was also a place with a significant number of elite white women who were very interested in things relating to female genius, to education, and to the expansion of opportunities. And you can see some of the most famous here on the bottom of the screen, uh, Sarah Beach Franklin, should be Sarah Franklin Beach, uh, Franklin's daughter, Elizabeth Willing Powell, who will be a great friend to Washington, and Anne Willing Bingham, who will actually correspond with Thomas Jefferson. And in this moment in Philadelphia, Eliza Harriet starts to give lectures. Her first ad appears on April 2nd of 1787, and over the course of the summer of 1787, the same moment when the convention delegates will be meeting to write the Constitution, almost every day of the Philadelphia newspapers contains an advertisement about the lady who's reading lectures at the university. In fact, there's over 140 advertisements and commentary in Philadelphia alone about her lectures. And because of her lectures, and because as we will see, she is able to persuade Washington to go to her lectures, the story of a lady lecturing at the university gets picked up by many other newspapers in the United States. And so I was able to find over 300 advertisements and commentary about Eliza Harriet. Eliza Harriet uh, started giving lectures in the beginning of April and basically continued, gave five lectures through the early summer uh, of 1787. Her lectures were characterized uh, by basically a type of lecture focusing on language. You can see eloquence, poetry, taste, and criticism. And this is a style that was very important at the time period associated with Hugh Blair and the Scottish Enlightenment. And she always included in her lectures, you can see a little bit here uh, on the screen, a story uh, by Madame de Genlis, who is one of the most famous French women writers who had become an educator for the royal family. So she's including women uh, as part of her, uh, of her lecture. On May 18th at the university, George Washington goes to attend her lecture. Uh, because of his attendance, her lecture gets a significant amount of coverage. In fact, Washington's attendance at her lecture appears in the Philadelphia newspapers and then across the United States in a commentary that was probably written by herself. What did she think she was doing in giving this lecture? Well, on May 4th, an anonymous correspondent, probably Eliza Harriet, explained the purpose of giving the lecture. And she noted that the female character should assume the station and command the honors due to the professors of science, that is, people who were highly educated. And then she noted that Europe would hear with envy that the toilette and drawing room, the two places where women often were found, would be deserted for the forum and the college. So she had enormous ambition in her lectures. She really imagined her lectures as the first step towards women being educated at the college level and participating in politics. In fact, at the lecture that George Washington attended, she gave part of the speech by Demosthenes on the crown, which was a key political speech. That speech became interpreted by newspaper editors as an argument criticizing the Rhode Island delegation's failure to appear and actually appeared in Rhode Island newspapers. Now, in addition to the example she had, she may have had influence on the way the Constitution was drafted. And this is obviously speculative. There is no direct evidence of this. But in the drafting of the Constitution that summer, there are three significant places where originally gender was referred to. And you can see these on the left side of the screen. Congress was referred to as two bodies of men, the three-fifths clause originally included the conception of the political uh, uh, 
community as including people identified by sex. And then most significantly in the draft of the fugitive slave clause, the word she appears. And this is a testament to African-American women's agency that when the white male drafter suggested the language, he literally could not imagine who would escape without envisioning women escaping from slavery. And this brings to mind uh, somebody like Oni Judge who will escape from George Washington uh, later in the period. But all of these gendered references were removed. And the Constitution instead uses a very neutral terminology of persons and he, that is the people in the Constitution, become referred to not by a word like male persons, but simply by persons. And we can see this consistency uh, in the Constitution, where we see this very consistent no person and he being the generic neutral term that basically is the pronoun for person. And we know that's a neutral pronoun because at the bottom of the page here, Article 4, Section 2, which is the clause that allows you, uh, if you commit a crime, to be returned to um, the state in which you committed the crime, the interstate um, clause, you can see that person, he, appears. And if that's true, people like me can commit crimes and not be taken back across state lines under the Constitution. So one of the arguments in the book is that the Constitution opened up the possibility of female inclusion in the political state. And this is important because this is a time when the state constitutions, the state frames of government, use a variety of different ways to to describe political participants. Massachusetts used the word male, but most constitutions used basically uh, neutral or generic terms. And in fact, in New Jersey, where the word inhabitant appeared in the constitution, women will begin to vote. By 1790, it's clear that women can vote in New Jersey because New Jersey passes legislation in 1790 referring to he or she. And we know that women and people of color vote in New Jersey through the 1790s until they're disenfranchised in 1807. And so the language of the federal constitution is open to this possibility. Now, that's not the only significant influence that Eliza Harriet had that summer. Eliza Harriet that summer argued to try and create a female governed Bell Letters Academy. This would have been a French academy. And on June 7th, 1787, in the Philadelphia newspapers, she puts forward her plan for the school. It's a school with a board governed half by women, half by men, with a female governess. And she describes the voting procedure as being majoritarian. So it's a school that would have always had a majority of women. And moreover, the woman who runs the school, the governors, will always give speeches in a large public hall. And it's in this advertisement that she gives the epigraph for the book. She imagines the head of the academy herself as presenting an example to be imitated and improved on. One of the letters left from Eliza Harriet is to Sally Beach Franklin, Sally Franklin Beach, Franklin's daughter, asking for support for her school. And had her school been started and been successful, it would have been an incredible opportunity for women. But unfortunately, Eliza Harriet's school does not turn out to be successful. And the reason it doesn't turn out to be successful is because of the decision of this man, Benjamin Rush. Now, Benjamin Rush is usually seen as not quite a founding father, but an important leader among male political figures in this period. And he's usually constructed as a pretty liberal guy. He was anti-slavery and for all sorts of interesting ideas. But where female education was concerned, he was surprisingly conservative. Now, his arguments for female education appear that summer first in a speech and then in a very influential pamphlet, Thoughts Upon Female Education. And this Benjamin Rush pamphlet, Thoughts Upon Female Education, because of its prominence and subsequent citation, because of the power Rush had in publishing this, 
It has been interpreted often by historians as showing that everybody believed in an argument called Republican motherhood. That is, that the reasons of female education were solely for women to be trained as wives and daughters in order to train sons to be American politicians. But now if we think about who else was there that summer with her ambitious school, women on the board, women giving speeches, women learning just like men, we can reinterpret Russia's thoughts upon female education. Russia's thoughts upon female education were designed to destroy Eliza Harriet and her vision. At every point in thoughts upon female education, instead of the kind of ambitious equal education that Eliza Harriet imagined, Rush argued women only needed a peculiar mode of education. They only needed to be educated sufficient to be wives and daughters. As Rush noted, they needed to be an agreeable companion for a sensible man or the daughter or wife of an American citizen. And when we think about Eliza Harriet O'Connor and her Irish Catholic husband, John O'Connor, we can feel much more uncomfortable about Rush's emphasis on becoming the daughter and wife of an American citizen. In fact, John O'Connor will eventually write a pamphlet designed to help promote George Washington's uh, Potomac River capital. And that pamphlet he will sign, Citizen of America, a little bit of a sort of getting back at Benjamin Rush. And Benjamin Rush's school that he supported, the Young Ladies Academy, which was run by men, will be the academy that prospers. Eliza Harriet will eventually leave Philadelphia later that summer, unable to raise money against Russia's condemnation. And the Young Ladies Academy girls will take their notes in notebooks that explain on the front that the end of their good education is not to be dancers, singers, players, or painters, but its objects is to make them daughters and good wives. Now, Eliza Harriet, having basically become then unsuccessful in Philadelphia in creating her school, will move southward. She will travel through the south, beginning in Baltimore, going all the way down to Charleston. And at one point, she stops in Alexandria and for a while runs a very successful school in Alexandria that's supported uh, a little bit by George Washington. But at each step, her husband basically runs up debts or moves on, and Eliza Harriet has to move to the next city with him and again try and support them by founding a new school by giving lectures. In October 1788, Eliza Harriet actually visits Mount Vernon for five days to talk to George and Martha about what should she do next. She will eventually move to Charleston, where she runs a quite successful academy with a large faculty. And she maybe crosses paths with George Washington one more time when George Washington is on his southern tour and visits Charleston. Now, lest you think that this was just Eliza Harriet, we can find other examples of people during this period who have this notion of female genius and who believe that women can participate in the political state. So here's one example from January 1790, a small paragraph that appeared in many newspapers in which the writer complained that the present custom of excluding women from any share in legislation was both unjust and detrimental. That it was unjust to exclude from any share one half of those who were considered as equal to the males. And we can find other examples in newspapers of people expressing this thought. It probably wasn't the majority, but there was that voice. In fact, very importantly, we can now see that Eliza Harriet's life in some way was very similar to the much more famous Mary Wollstonecroft's life. Mary Wollstonecroft in 1787, the same year that Eliza Harriet moved from New York to Philadelphia, wrote Thoughts on the Education of, the da of Daughters, emphasizing female education. 
Mary Wollstonecroft will actually, under a pseudonym, Mr. Creswick, in 1789, publish a female reader, basically a set of selections designed to encourage women to read aloud, to do what Wollstonecroft will call obtruding themselves on the public. And it's out of this understanding of education and female oratory that Wollstonecroft will finally in 1792 write basically rights of woman, write vindication on the rights of woman, and will explicitly make the argument that women ought to have representatives. Mary Wollstonecroft's books, Rights of Woman, was actually popularly received originally when it appeared in Philadelphia. In fact, the first volume of the Philadelphia Ladies Magazine, you can see this image in the lower right-hand corner, contained significant excerpts from the vindication and created, included this beautiful frontispiece which involves figures described as the genius of the magazine and the genius of emulation presenting the rights of woman to liberty, basically to the United States. And in fact, we can see women participating. Here's the New Jersey poll list. This is, I think, from 1801. The Museum of the American Revolution uh, last year did a wonderful exhibit on New Jersey and women voting. Lots of women vote in New Jersey during this period. And in 1793, at the school that Rush supported, the Young Ladies Academy, a young woman named Priscilla Mason, who might have even heard Eliza Harriet a few years earlier, gave this speech. Supposing now we possessed all the talents of the orator, where shall we find a theater for the display of them? The church, the bar, the Senate are shut against them. Who shut them? Man, despotic man, first made us incapable of the duty and then forbid us the exercise. Let us by suitable education qualify ourselves for those high departments they will open before us. I love to imagine Benjamin Rush sitting in the audience at a school which he thought would teach subordination listening to a young woman give a speech that basically argued for women with education and participating in the political state. Indeed, Priscilla Mason went on in the speech to argue that she had been told that there were no legal or constitutional restrictions on women becoming lawyers. But like Eliza Harriet's personal life, the political life doesn't turn out to support that. In Charleston in 1792, Eliza Harriet's pretty successful school collapsed. It collapsed because of um, her husband's debts. There was a large financial collapse in the United States in 1792. This is actually going to be the beginning of Wall Street and Alexander Hamilton's uh, sort of um, financial solutions to um, large creditor debt. And the O'Connor School, Ms. Eliza Harriet School collapses. Eliza Harriet publishes an ad in the newspaper saying that she's trying to basically pay off her husband's debts, but they seem to be unsuccessful and they actually flee across state lines to Georgia. And in the larger political world, this sort of moment where women seem to be able to participate in the political state also seems to collapse. The great historian Rosie Zagari calls this a backlash, and historians debate what actually causes sort of history to reverse itself. Is it the French Revolution? Is it the Haitian Revolution? Is it the way that Wollstonecroft's life was depicted uh, in, uh, by, her, um, by her husband? Is it larger debates over male suffrage or the rise of the organized political parties as the United States moves to a two-party system, or the general funding by public entities of male education. But whatever the reason, beginning in 1792, this world which seemed possibly open to female inclusion begins to close. And you can see in the lower right-hand corner by 1798, Wollstonecroft is basically portrayed in this kind of um, uh, negative light with her sort of portrayed as trying to be uh, a man. Beginning in 1792, this new genre of the Constitution begins to be used to exclude women from the potential of political power. 
And this begins with the Kentucky Constitution, which describes free male citizens. And basically, every state admitted to the United States between 1802 to 1876 will adopt this approach to who participates in the political state. Many of them will describe either free or white participants, and they will describe participants sometimes by person or inhabitant, increasingly with the word citizen. But each of those will include the word male. Indeed, New Jersey itself will reverse and repeal its constitutional provision, allowing women and people of color to vote, and in 1807, declaring that only free white male citizens can vote. This is a moment when, in essence, historians have tended to think, older historians in older periods have argued, this is the rise of democracy. And it is the rise of a certain kind of democracy. Property exclusions and religious exclusions will fall away, and many more white male voters will be able to participate. But it's also a moment of exclusion, because all of those efforts to expand the pool of white male voters work to exclude women and people of color from voting. Eliza Harriet's life doesn't follow any happier story. She ends up with her last ad in Columbia in 1799. She's still trying to teach, but what she even describes with herself as her feeble attempts at teaching. But we can hear a little bit of her ambition, even in this one glimpse of an ad. She's once again proposing to open an evening school to teach the French language. Her will in 1811 shows that she was living in one room in someone's house. She includes things like a chamber pot, some books, her needlework. She was no longer wealthy. I lose track of her husband, John, in 1793. I like to imagine he went back to Ireland to join the incipient Irish Revolution. But more likely, he died of diseases that went through repeatedly Columbia. Now, we wouldn't want to end on such a terribly sad and depressing note. And so one of the amazing things about Eliza Harriet's life is, remember, she thought of the example of a woman would present an example to be imitated and proved on by future candidates for literary fame. And what she means by literary fame there is people who just are sort of have lives that other people write about. And we can interestingly see this constellation of education and political participation in so many women in the 19th century who push the boundaries of political exclusion. The book ends with a woman who actually was born precisely 100 years after Eliza Harriet in Columbia, South Carolina, where Eliza Harriet died. And this is a remarkable woman called Charlotte Rollin, African-American, raised in a relatively elite family, learned French, was highly educated. And in 1869, after the end of the Civil War, Charlotte Rollin accepts the invitation of the South Carolina legislature for any lady to come forward and argue for female suffrage. And we know Charlotte Rollins, what she says, because unlike Eliza Harriet, she had the good understanding to create a small version of her speech. And to my knowledge, the only four copies of the speech that I know of right now are all held in Canada. But in this speech, she makes the same argument that Eliza Harriet made about women deserving the rights of representation, particularly, as Charlotte Rollins argues, African-American women. Now, Eliza Harriet was not instantly revolutionary. And in fact, only five letters of hers exist today, four to George Washington. But as an example to be imitated and improved on, we have to wonder how many people saw her heard of her, read about her in the newspaper, or were influenced by her life and career. If we think back to George Washington's comment that her performance was tolerable, we might say 
her performance was tolerable indeed. I hope she and her story also serve as an example to so many people who continue to challenge education and political exclusion on the basis of sex. Thank you very much. That was very inspiring. Um, oh. That was wonderful. Um, I hope everybody also felt inspired by that. That was, I was waiting for the next slide and waiting for the next woman to learn about. Also, I look at Benjamin Rush totally differently after tonight. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was great, you know, he, a really important figure, you know, wonderful things, um, but female education was one where his um, horizons were, were fairly uh, fairly limited and um and you know not only that but he was pretty invested in making sure everybody agreed with his uh limited understanding of female education i love that you said limited understanding yeah yeah uh, which gets me to one of the questions that i was thinking about when we were talking about the bell's letter academy and starting this girl's school what did that education look like? So she must have put forward a different kind of curriculum that got people a little bit more uncomfortable. Yeah, so she has, so so it's a great question. Um, we know a little bit about where she was educated. She was educated at a school called Mrs. Aylesworthy's school um, outside of London in Chelsea. And Chelsea had actually developed a reputation for a long time of being um, a sort of great center for female education, um, had actually had one of the early 17th century feminists had tried to run a school there. And she goes to school, she would have been a precise contemporary um, with John Wilkes's daughter, the great political reformer uh, whose daughter's there and Tobias Smollett. So, you know, she's kind of hanging with pretty uh, important people. And she brings this model of education, that's what she uh, imagines. And so it looks just like male education. Um, there is no Latin, but Latin is actually falling out of favor at this time, uh, even among male educators. In fact, Washington says like, don't waste my nephew's time teaching them Latin, there's no point to that. Um, and so she's really emphasizing French and French comes to be seen as a sort of elite sort of not important thing but in this period of course you know france is the great friend to the united states uh france is the world of the political enlightenment and particularly for women being able to read french meant that um there's just this incredible world of french women writers so she's emphasizing that as one super important aspect of her educational model and doing math she does geography she does astronomy um but then she also teaches this bell letters art of speaking and and that's the idea of learning oratory. And this is widely held uh, in this period to be a critical um, a sort of critical skill set. And it will be so important for women. Again, it will become devalued and turn sort of into rote poetic memorization eventually, um, but not in this period. In this period, it's really a very important thing. I wish I learned astronomy growing up. I hear about all of this like 18th century education and I was like, mm -hmm. Yeah, she actually gets, um, she actually gets, she buys two, two globes and, and the globes were a way of uh, learning geography and geography in this period um, looks a little bit more uh, like some some sort of uh, geography, social science history. So it's really trying to understand um, the large, the sort of large cosmopolitan nature of the world and the universe. And that's what astronomy was also. So it's a pretty um, enlightened, progressive type of education she's modeling. And then very importantly, um, this probably comes out of her own background. She's insistent on um, what she calls freedom of religion in her New York ads. She runs them in French and she says there will be freedom of religion. And that's so significant. Um, a, not, a lot of academies, including Benjamin Rush's, are dominated by um, uh, by Protestant religious male religious figures. And so she's really um, putting herself uh, in a different space on that. Every time you say something new, I'm just like, this woman sounds incredible. Yeah, she's not, she's so incredible. I was so sad I couldn't find a, I'm sure there is a portrait of her somewhere. It's got to be um, somewhere. But, um, but 
since there's not even a Wikipedia entry, um, th there's a, a wonderful essay, a little essay on her by Granville Ganter, but that's the only person who really has also written on her. And so hopefully, hopefully now some people will find things. But her cousin's portrait uh, is um, uh, is beautiful, and Bonham's allowed me to use that in the book. It's owned by a private collector, so. Um. Yeah, somewhere there's a picture of her. People um, people who own those pictures should look for her nose. Yeah, start digitizing your own personal collection. Yeah. Um, I had a question, um, and then I'll get to the groups. I saw a few come in. They were really interesting. And it kind of dives into the summer of Phil in, the, in Philadelphia in 1787 and these groups of women talking in, in the drawing rooms and salons. And what was the general kind of feeling that was going on. So you have these women who are talking about these great, incredible, politically progressive things. What is the, the other side going on, right? So we know how Benjamin Rush feels, but were there women who were vocally competing with Eliza about this or... Was so it just we, kind of a consensus? Yeah, yeah, so we don't know, you know, we don't know. It's a, it's a, there's, you know, she doesn't leave any papers. She doesn't have children or she did have children. Um, they died very young and, and, you know, people's papers survive because we, um, we have children or we're wealthy enough to have houses. And she reminds us of um, what happens when, when you don't have either. Her, you know, basically we even know about her because she, had the sort of financial savvy to place newspaper ads and because she wrote to Washington. And so in some ways his, um, you know, it's, it's his power that allows us to see her at all. So we don't, we don't completely know. Um, among other elite women, there's a lot of interest in female education and it's a little hard to sort of know, you know, where that where that would have gone, how many people would have favored hers or not. She's not successful in Philadelphia, um, uh, raising money to found her own, uh, to found her own school. Um, there's, there are sort of the Young Ladies Academy speeches at the school that Rush runs um, become, become pretty in your face uh, for, you know, young girls giving speeches. So you sort of feel like somewhere there were probably people who were um, uh, ticked off about it, but it's, Female education expands very dramatically um, uh, in this period. There's a story that Mary uh, Kelly tells, but um, but it'll really be the 1820s and 1830s before we see pretty widespread numbers of women sort of you know really participating in politics, and that's got a lot to do with uh, anti-slavery reform and uh, abolitionist activities. Interesting. Uh, Lisa would like to know: Did Martha go to the lecture with her husband? Yeah, I know. Wouldn't that have been awesome? She did go. Uh, she didn't go to the lecture. She actually doesn't even get to go to Philadelphia. And uh, so she's um, back in Virginia and and Washington spends most of his summer with women. He liked women. He found women really interesting. Um, he corresponded with women uh, a lot. And um, he he spends a lot of his summer with a woman named Eliza Willing Powell. And Powell is the woman some, you might have heard um, the the quote, you know, like, Mr. Franklin, what did you give us? A republic, if you can keep it. Okay, no, it drives me crazy. Everybody quotes that and no <laughs> one says like, that's actually Elizabeth Willing Powell. And she is an incredible figure who also is the person who um, most Washington historians believe persuaded Washington not to step down uh, after the end of his first term. And so she probably went to the lectures. Uh, Mary White Morris goes to the lectures. There seems to be lots of women. And um, Eliza Harriet's interested in attracting women. So in one, in one of her subscription series, she says, uh, a ticket allows you to bring three women or two women and one man. And I've never known, like, I don't think she had a bouncer or anything. So I don't <laughs> think she was kicking, kicking men out, but she was really interested in um, having women come to the lecture. So I wish, um, I wish Martha could have been there. She does get, go and talk to Martha Washington um, when she's at uh, Mount Vernon in 1788. Yeah, interesting. Um, I wonder what she would have responded with and because I just know how powerful Martha was in, in the terms of their relationship. So, yeah. And Martha Washington, like a lot of women of her generation, um, uh, expressed some sadness in not being educated. 
um, Eliza Powell expressed some sadness in not being educated. And Eliza Harriet seems to know, sense this, because a number of her ads for her schools say there will be a noontime lecture and ladies of a certain age who had not been given education could attend. And so she, she almost has this sense of a generation that um, sort of had missed the opportunity for being educated. And if you've ever looked at uh, Abigail Adams's spelling, you understand what um, female education looked like um, really, you know, in the 1760s. Yeah. Uh, Karen would like to know, her biggest hurdles in life seem to be her husband's debts. Did she want to divorce him and wasn't allowed? Do you want to talk a little bit more about their relationship? Yeah. So their relationship is really interesting. And it's actually a moment in the book where um, when I talk about the relationship, where I pull back a little bit. One of the things as a historian is, you know, like it, it's hard not to want to write like the Hollywood movie version where she sees the good looking guy and she falls mm -hmm. in love and everything like that. But um, but actually in the 1770s, um, there's a pretty marked uh, number of examples of of women who are heiresses, that they're the only um, children of their fathers, being abducted by young Irish men coming to London, who uh, sort of um, sort of want to rise up in society. And abduction is the constant theme of um, this expansion in female literature in this period. Um, basically, the anxiety and fear of, of being abducted, basically being raped or being forced to marry and then raped, and you know, what's what's what are often called seduction novels. And so I pull back a little bit, like I love the idea that she fell in love, but that's outside of what we know about it. So I, you know, basically I think probably um, however their relationship started, they stay together for a long time. She travels with him. They're apart quite a bit. Um, he's pretty itinerant and definitely the only reason they stay at all afloat is because of um, uh, because of her work. And uh, he he had actually pretty good ideas. Weirdly, he has lots of ideas that other people go on to do pretty successfully, but they have no connections. And it's sort of a, a important reminder of how many people who are successful in the United States in the 1780s are able to tap into um, financial connections um, to sort of back them and that they don't have it. And so they're completely dependent on her giving lectures and, um, and doing these schools. But yeah, I don't know if I don't think <laughs> the only reason I think she wouldn't have divorced him, even if so, is is she is is at the very end at Columbia, he kind of they're back together and he's offering to teach some classes and things like that. So whatever their sort of on again and off again relationship is um, that, you know, they keep they sort of do stick together quite a bit. It's okay. a great question. Not every marriage is perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he might have. I think he. Uh, I think he had a tad of the ambitious, um, living above his means kind of uh, sensibility. I haven't seen that in the Revolutionary War era. <laughs> uh, I had a few questions come in about the cover of your book. Uh, who is that woman? Where did now, who is that from? woman? It's not. I know. I wish it was her. Um, I would. I would love it. My father's like, "Why do you have a naked person on your book cover?" <laughs> uh, I was like, "Well, nobody will walk into a store and buy it." It's a beautiful picture that um, actually the designer of the book found. It's a picture that dates from the Civil War, and um, and and it's actually from the Library of Congress, and it's just a a beautiful um, a beautiful image. And one of the real struggles. And one of the things the book talks about is in this period, there are so, uh, here, I'll hold it up again. Uh, there are, you can see why my dad uh, was <laughs> like, this looks like a naked lady. Um, uh, there's so few images of women lecturing. And that's one of the things that's really interesting about her is she doesn't have even visual um, images of what it would look like to stand up and um, uh, lecture in front of uh, in front of people. And I have to say, this is a thing where I get very nervous talking. And so she's in some ways been a really big role model for me because I think about what it took to stand up in front of Washington and all these people um, when you didn't have any model of that and uh, and speak. And then I think, okay, I can do these littler lectures in a world where it has become somewhat um, 
uh, more common. But we all know that women get heard differently and women still face uh, um, uh, a lot of difficulties in being seen as speakers in the same way um, men do. Yeah, the book is called Female Genius. <laughs> female genius so it's a great it's a great title uh and a, and the designer just did uh, a beautiful um a beautiful job with the cover it's wonderful i've had so much so much to learn i wrote down a whole bunch of different names of every every portrait that you wrote down i want to learn more and it's always encouraging to learn about the women that i study professionally and want to talk about more and hear speakers like you who have written these books and it's just it's so heartwarming for me yeah gonna... well i i i put a lot of pictures in because i like pictures so the book has 36 images and um and uh and i was really happy that the press i kept being can i have one more and they were like no you got to cut it out at 36 so I know. editors am i right yeah exactly uh our last question is one that i always like to end on if you can dine at francis tavern with any person who would it be and why well, I would have to say Eliza Harriet, but I would also love George Washington there because I think listening to the two of them talk would have been wonderful. At the end of the summer of 1787, as he leaves the convention, his book purchasing list shows that he bought three books that basically relate to her lectures. And so um, she obviously had a sort of interesting influence on, on, on him and, and what he thought. Uh, what he thought about so i if i know it's cheating to say the two of them but uh i'd love to have the two of them for dinner companions i would honestly probably stand in the back as like a barkeep <laughs> that conversation so it's totally fine that's a great answer <laughs> so thank you so much for the wonderful presentation uh and thank you all for your wonderful questions tonight and thank you for joining us if you enjoyed tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date with all of our programs you can join our mailing list by going to francistavernmuseum.org there you can also find our social media accounts as well as the calendar of upcoming programs. Our next lecture will be on June 16th. Thank you to those who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the American Revolutionary Era with the public. If you would like to make a donation, you can also do that on our website, francistavernmuseum.org. Thank you again for joining us for another Francis Tavern Museum lecture and we hope to see you soon. Good night, everybody, and thank you.